And Tina and I were just talking a little bit before the talk here, and I asked her if she could tell how long we've been here. <laughs> I said, your choices are three days, one week, or one month. <laughs> and she couldn't tell. <laughs> so, I can't tell either. <laughs> we spent a month here. We taught our first month on retreat in... Uh, September and part of October, so I feel like it's just a continuation of that. <laughs> like, did we actually leave? <laughs> there, was, there were four people from that retreat here, so yeah. it, it helps confirm that we're all just hanging around. <laughs> so we thought we'd start off tonight by just checking in and seeing if anyone has comments or questions or anything to share about mudita and the gratitude practice. Yeah, Andrew. So my, my ship of mudita was standing along nicely until it ran aground on a particular set of people, I guess. Mm-hmm. These are difficult people whose happiness, at least in the instances I was considering, was derived from something that was not very skillful or perhaps even sort of twisted. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if... Um, the sort of diminishment of mudita is because of mind sitting in judgment of that, or that the heart really isn't supposed to wrap itself around a joy that comes from something that isn't real, not something like that. Mm-hmm. I remember your example of the politicians and their real joy at something you might not agree with, but this seems different. Like somebody whose joy comes from malicious gossip. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. So he's asking about uh, he he sort of things were going well with Mudita until he got to a uh, situation where somebody's joy came from something really kind of twisted or unwholesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a hard one. And um, so, I, I, was this one of the difficult people, or yeah. Uh-huh. And somebody I don't have a lot of contact with, well, a couple of different people, but I don't really know much about them except these interactions that are generally characterized for something unpleasant. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, people in the world like ISIS or something, you know. Right, yeah, like should we feel mudita for ISIS torturing <coughs> people or something like that, you know. Yeah, that'd be a hard one. Um, well, well, I think with the, the other question here we need to include is what's wholesome and what's unwholesome joy? Mm-hmm. And really, we want to resonate. Yeah. We want to be in contact with wholesome joy. Mm-hmm. So, if someone is deriving pleasure from throwing orphans out of the orphanage, we really don't want to be mm-hmm. feeling mudita for them. It, you know, and, and yeah, there's a certain judgment, but we could also call it a discerning wisdom mm-hmm. to say it's just unwholesome. There's there's not many ways to approach it other than that. So, so typically we want to find, and we weren't terribly clear on this, but it's a good point, that we want to resonate with the, the wholesome joy. And so a difficult person, you may find a lot of joy they have in unwholesomeness, but you want to see, like for example, even someone like a member of ISIS, they might love their mother, they might love their children, and so there's a way you might get in contact with some joy even that person would have, <coughs> from the wholesomeness of just loving their, their relative. Okay. 
And then it started to unravel a bit because it felt like a lot of the joy that feels wholesome is based on something that's kind of diluted or illusory anyway. Right. But yes, yeah, so it came unraveled because yeah. the, the joy seemed to be around some in relation to something illusory. Right, right. Well, and they tried, but you know, because they did really well on the test or something. That's I don't know. Yeah, but it got a little tricky. Then. Yeah, and this is part of the practice too. Is is finding situations where we get confounded, and then coming back with some wisdom to examine and figure out, and then next time we go on into that practice, we'll have a little more discernment about how to navigate. So, mm-hmm. yeah, overall, it's a good thing because you because you learn. I mean, you had a it disrupted your practice but you've also learned something now where you have more grounding when you go back in when, when you consider the difficult people that you were talking about is, is there anything you can be in touch with that um, that I mean sometimes we just don't know really what brings somebody happiness or what good fortune mm-hmm. they're having but is there anything Available that yeah. would be in a different category in your well, perception. I mean, it became kind of like a practice of counting someone else's blessings. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you should probably love your husband. I bet you do. I'm happy that you are happy with your husband. Uh huh. I wasn't sure, but it seemed reasonable. Right. Yeah. And well, this is part of it. Yeah. You kind of you're kind of making it up a little bit. Yeah. Right. But the the idea isn't. Um, we don't have to really know for sure. Right. The idea is more that, like with a difficult person, really with Mudita, the hardest place is when we have envy or jealousy coming up, more than with a difficult person. Like we have a neighbor who was one of my neutral people that was in, um, uh, let's see, what was he? Anyway, he was in, he's one of the neutral people because I don't know him very well. But he has a lot of cars that are, he likes antique cars. And he does a lot of things like revving the engines for a long time during the day and other things that are, you know, most of the neighbors find kind of annoying. I mean, it's not a huge deal, but um, there's a way where I could sort of, I could really see how he gets so much joy out of this. You know, and so that's a little bit on the borderline of, you know, he's not really harming anybody, but it is something that kind of sometimes rubs me a little bit the wrong way. So, but there's a way where my hope would be that next time he does that, maybe it will be more neutral for me, or um, if I am around him, I can actually have something, a positive connection with him. So, I mean, like with Mudita and the difficult person, it's not so much the content. Um, it, as it is feeling more neutrality towards the difficult person. Mm-hmm. So that's where we can't, sometimes we can't really know for sure, but there's still a way to be able to work with it. We can't know what really brings them joy. And it's important yeah. to remember with all the Brahma Viharas, these are about your practice. Yeah. So it's impacting your true nature, the heart of your true nature. So whether it's really true about whether this person loves their wife or husband, in some ways it's not even that important. It's really how is it impacting you, how are you relating to it, and with your own wholesomeness as sort of a filter. So ultimately that's what matters. Yeah. So it sounds skillful, yeah, what you work with. Catherine. Oh. Oops. Go ahead, Kathleen. Is that who's calling on? Go ahead. Great. 
I found uh, it very difficult. And it uh, <coughs> seems that I'm much more attuned to people's suffering uh, than their joy. It's much easier somehow to find that or, or you know, the initial meta. And so, because a lot of the time, you know, unless it was somebody that was quite close to me, it was just a really my imagination about what I enjoy. And so I found to have that as an object of concentration was also difficult because uh, there was sometimes often there was nothing to come back to to ground myself. So it was a it was an interesting exercise uh, today. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Don't know. I have a question, but uh, you know, I was all over the place, really. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, trying to find a skillful means to stay <coughs> concentrated when the object wasn't readily apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's saying that um, she must be more attuned to people's suffering than their joy because it wasn't that easy to find. Um, objects of the meditation of really being in contact with what other people were had their happiness or good fortune about yeah do you have a sense and and you know I think a lot of us will lean towards one Brahmavihara or another some may be more uh, feel more natural and that may also change depending on the circumstances of your life and other things too do you have a sense of of that? I mean, was that a surprise to you, or is this something that seems understandable? Or Well, I've never done it before, so <clears throat> I don't know if it's different than it would have been at other time. I mean, I looked for things where that I saw as good fortune. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, Sometimes I would just sit in the emptiness and then something would arise where I said, oh, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. But to genuinely be finding people's joy and, and feeling that all day long was a very difficult thing to do. It just wasn't that, you know, I... <laughs> you know, I, I recognize that I might not quite have it when I was thinking about Bill Gates and... Yeah, well, the, one thing that is always an option with any of these practices, rather than cycling through large numbers of people, is to, you know, work with one person or with a small number of people, you know, just for future reference. Um, did you try the gratitude practice at all? Yes, I did. What was that like? That was much, much easier. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, I knew what I was grateful for. Yeah. Well, you know, I would just encourage you to, you know, maybe this is something as you are in the world or even just on the rest of the retreat. I mean, we'll be going on to Upaka, so if you want to go on to Upaka, that will be next. But it'd be interesting to see, you know, in a month if you, if this is something you start noticing more. Yeah, I had that thought. Yeah. I thought I wanted to notice people's joy. You know, 
Thanks for sharing that. And any other comments on that? No, I, my, my suspicion also is that moving back into your normal life, that you probably will be seeing joy more, noticing it more. And it's also something you can work with your with your partner as well to help you identify that when you see it in, in the world. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, there are those people also who don't really um, express that a lot, and yet we can maybe understand something about their life and see good fortune that's in their life that um, we're maybe extrapolating a little bit. But, you know, there is... It's kind of unfortunate there's a little bit of a cultural taboo to not be so forthcoming and talking about our own good fortune because it sounds like bragging or, you know, might cause envy in others and so on. And it's, it's kind of a shame in a way because there's only a small circle of people sometimes that we can really share that with safely. And so it's, you know, that may be part of it too is that people just don't share it that readily. Thank you. Michelle? Um, I have two questions. Um, so with each spitting, I'm going through the sequence of beings, and it seems like the same people are coming up with each sitting, so it's good to be kind of repetitive, and at times there's a little bit of boredom that sets in. And also, um, with my mind, there's like this effort and a little bit of thinking that seems to fit in where I'm trying to think of make sure I'm not missing anyone on my list or, you know, trying to think of people that um, I should, you know, do a practice for. Um, and there seems to be a lot of, kind of gets kind of tiring. So when that comes up, can you kind of give me some guidance and help to deal with that? And my mm-hmm. second question is, um, can you talk a little bit more the near and immediate grasping for the present? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. So the first question or comment question was that she was working with Mudita and finding that moving through the category of beings that she was finding the same people coming up in the different categories. And so some of that led to a feeling of boredom. And then we did know Michelle, she was on the month long, so we know that she went maybe to future planning and began to make a list of the people to be on that Mudita. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's a good question. And my question in return would be, uh, who, who are the people coming up? Because it's something that's come up in different categories, right? Were they in different categories, or was it just the same people in the same categories? Yeah. I see. So, so if you had, say, two people in the, the neutral category, you wouldn't get a third or a fourth? You would get those same two? Um, I mean, a lot of them would come up. I mean, occasionally I would have like, a name that, or, you know, a face that comes up with a lot of them, or, like, you know, family members or friends. Um, you know, that they, I mean, they all kind of came up in the same different Right. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my first impression is, in that instance, if I were sitting in your spot, I would probably uh, then try and do a deep dive with one of the people in the category. I mean, really try to penetrate into really use your concentration on their joy and feeling the mudita. So you're, again, you're not generating the mudita, but by concentrating on their joy, um, really seeing the mudita arises. And, and to what extent? 
because I, I think that's kind of what's happening. So I would probably approach it that way myself. Well, were you experiencing mudita arising at all, or what you were? Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there can be a tendency to have the same people come up over and over because we have a certain circle of people in our lives. And that's not necessarily, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. If it's getting kind of dry and flat, then I might wonder if you were kind of, you were cycling through in kind of a fast way or a way that you weren't maybe having as much connection with the individuals and and, um, what was specific about them in the different Brahma Viharas. Uh, and this is where, like, the visual can become helpful. Like, what we might um, orient towards somebody, obviously, like for compassion, where they're suffering, versus mudita, where they're having something, some good fortune. Those would be different, even though it's the same person. It'd be a different situation for that person. So that's where, even with the same person the content is a little bit different. I mean, it would be kind of fairly different for those two. So I don't know if that would make a difference for you at all. Yeah, and then as Stephen said, to, to maybe do a deep dive. Like, um, one of the things I've been noticing, I just made some notes based on some of the interviews, and, and not just for Mudita, but I'll just summarize here, is that I'm kind of seeing three things coming up. One is that people are... Um, whatever the Brahmihar is, there's emotions that are coming up that are sort of in the way of that Brahmihar, and so people are working with those other emotions. So, you know, kind of working that area. And then people are also working like that edge. So with Mudita, maybe if there's somebody where it's it's kind of not that easy to feel the mudita and maybe there's even a feeling of some jealousy or envy that becomes then an edge to work where we're really working the purification aspect of the practice so again if we're going through through the list quickly it's it may that may not show up as easily and then the last thing is to actually be in contact with whatever the brahmavihara quality is so um so if you go deeper with somebody that might be where it might be a little more complicated and maybe it's not as clean or the mudita isn't as accessible, that can be a way to sort of work that edge of um, the purification of heart kind of edge. Does that make sense? Your second question is about the one near enemy, the grasping for the pleasant. And again, the near enemies, another way we can look at that is what might we confuse for the Brahma-vihara quality? So if, if grasping for the pleasant might be something that we confuse for mudita, for empathetic or sympathetic joy, it could be that we are uh, sort of mining or only seeking out the pleasant experience uh, that we want to latch on to. So if we were we were in contact with another person, we might only want them to talk about pleasant things mm-hmm. rather than unpleasant things. That somehow it might make us feel a little better. And I also I mentioned last night one of my thoughts had been that it maybe had to do with people faking being like if you're if you're sharing joy and I'm not actually feeling mudita, 
and we're friends, and I sort of say, oh, isn't that great? You know, it's kind of a fake way to show mudita, but I can't generate it kind of a real way. But sometimes people will do that, you've seen. So I, I'm not quite sure exactly what that points to. I think there's... Do you have any thoughts on yeah, that? Well, we're, yeah, well, we, we have to remember that we're doing these practices like we're doing now a whole day on mudita, which is, you know, part of... We're doing this as a cultivation as an intentional exercise, which is, you know, the purpose of a retreat and doing a practice intensively. But in life, we're just out there encountering people and beings and so on, and we don't know if somebody's going to, you know, we're going to have lunch with a friend and they're going to be suffering a lot, or they're going to be sharing the greatest thing that just happened with them yesterday. We don't really know. And so it's not like we can really that responsiveness of the heart is going to depend on what situations are presenting themselves. So in that way, I think with mudita, the, the danger is that um, because it feels kind of nice, I mean, if we can really be in touch with it, now we're having lunch with our friend and they're trying to tell us about something difficult that happened and it's like, well, you know, what about this that just happened? Aren't you happy about that? And so now we're kind of trying to make the good thing come up because it feels better. To us. To us. It feels better to us to be in contact with that person's happiness than it does to be in contact with their suffering. Does that make sense? So we start kind of looking for only the pleasant and and diminishing the reality of the suffering that is, is a part of the human experience. Where, where Tina's point is well taken that, that in reality what would be happening perhaps, is that mudita might be arising when they're sharing their joy, and if they go into something difficult, you're seeing their suffering and compassion may arise. That, that may be the reality of what happens in your experience. But as Tina mm-hmm. said, we're, we're narrowing this down, trying to do a, a very, well, we're doing a deeper dive with, with one Brahma Vihara, which really in some ways isn't quite the way it's going to function in, in your life. Right, so that's where the, the near enemy becomes where we start really looking for this and try and, try and make it appear where the situation isn't really calling for um, mudita. Does, does that make, make sense? Yeah. Dave? Uh, I find that for me um, a big entry point from these is working with animals. Mm-hmm. Because with mm-hmm. people, there's you know, s- um, storylines of is it wholesome or unwholesome. But animals are just animals, so I don't, mm-hmm. don't I don't have to wonder whether it's a, a, a wholesome cat or an unwholesome cat. It's just a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so, and, and, and so, it's, and so, so today when I was doing yoga practice, I mean, what what cued it was when I was walking up the drive from a walk outside. There was that gorgeous black and white cat outside, which is such an honest experience. Oh, that you'd be happy. Though. Animals deserve to be happy too, right? So yeah, it seemed like it was an easy entry point rather than going, and then later I went on to other things that were more challenging. But sure. it seemed like it was just smoother. Right. right. So he's talking about how um, with animals it's very easy to see their their joy and their happiness, and so it's a great entry point for mudita. And yeah, I, I was actually petting the cats today too, and somebody came by and I thought, you know, we're going to have to start taking numbers here. <laughs> like, am I hogging, you know? Am I, am I taking too much time with the cats? <laughs> but yeah, they especially, I mean, when an animal is really happy, they just are so 
it's so obvious and it's so um, contagious. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Yesterday, Tina was petting the cats. We we went for a walk petting the cats, and I could see the cat. I hear the cat purring. So the cat's happy. I can see Tina's joy petting the cat. The cat happy. So. I can see her mudita, and I'm having mudita for her mudita. <laughs> it's <laughs> just a daisy chain. So, so, yeah. Yeah. But, but I didn't have to do anything. I was just standing there. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the passive mudita. We could all stand there, it. and the cat is like the hub, and, and it's just a chain of all of us looking at each other's mudita. Yeah. <laughs> And then we realize the cat is planning this, and we start getting suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think Laura had um, a few things in mind, and in, in having these cats come and live here. <laughs> and that cat's name is Pom Pom. Yeah. Well, it, it, it has a number of names, and, and we were told all these different names that the cat has been given, and we just thought, well, I liked Pom Pom the best. So if we, we asked the cat, and the cat thought <laughs> <laughs> respectable but kind of cute. And the other one, the little um, Tabby, is named Rascal. Yeah. Although he's just such a I think cute little baby face. Like baby face or something. I'm not sure right. he was named right. But. Why, why don't we shift gears here? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the cat sutta. <laughs> so I'm going to be talking about Upeka. Uh, Upeka is normally translated as equanimity. And before I go into that, I want to read a quote. Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible arise within us. And that's from Carl Fried Durkheim, The Way of Transformation. So in talking about Upeka, and I think Tina was just mentioning that she appreciates all the Brahma Viharas and I shared with her that Upeka is my favorite. So I'm not sure you're supposed to have favorites, but it is. Um, Upeka is also talked about as balance. And one of the functions Upeka has in the Brahma Viharas is it helps to keep the other Brahma Viharas in balance. Because we've seen where there's ways where the others, the, the metta, loving kindness, the Karuna compassion and even the mudita, empathetic joy, can be out of balance for the situation. It can be it can be uh, inappropriate essentially. And so, when we talk about balance, ordinarily we would talk about it as having a sense of an inner scale in our personality, and we have a sense of how much is the right amount, how much we deserve, how much other people deserve of whatever it is. And when that scale gets out of balance, not in our favor, we do a variety of things to equal that balance. So this would be a balance that's more of a, uh, it's a doing balance, it's a uh, control balance. You know, it, we're, we're doing something to try to affect the balance. And the balance, what's right and what the right balance is, is based upon our own personal sense of what we think we should be entitled to. And I'm not talking about that kind of balance in equanimity with Upeka. I'm talking about the balance 
that comes again from your true nature. This is an inherent quality. And by when we say inherent, we mean that these are qualities that you're born with. You don't have to get them from anywhere. No one's going to give them to you. They're within your consciousness. And they just need sort of the right invitation to move forward. And the more that they move forward, the more that they become activated in a way that can be useful in your spiritual unfolding. So another way we might look at Upeka as really almost being a kind of a deep acceptance without concept, without control. And Upeka is very helpful in life because it helps us to stay more balanced in the ebbs and flows of life, the ups and downs that we can face. And it can help us by being more more balanced, not being as reactive when we see or feel that the balance is out of skew for us. The other Brahmaviharas have the potential to want to change people. The the compassion in particular, we can really want, you know, when people are suffering, we can really want that suffering to change in a particular way. And that may be how we feel the compassion is showing up. But this Brahmavihara, and I think the reason that I say it's my favorite is because I think it had the deepest impact on me when we did the retreat with the Sayadaw. Um, we, we did the two-month retreat, and in doing these Brahmaviharas, we did them to the point of jhana, so to the point of absorption. So really deeply, uh, just in a unified consciousness with these qualities of our true nature. And just the balance, the, the, um, the inherent sense, really, that everything was all right, and somehow it was perfect, exactly the way it was. And it's a really strange to the mind. It's a strange experience. How can that be possible? How can, how can things being just the way they are right now be perfect balance? It doesn't make logical sense. And yet that is the experience. So it doesn't mean that we can't effectuate and get involved in change and make change. Because you know, I'm not talking about the use of wisdom. And wisdom will come in in terms of how we function and express our true nature, which may affect changes. I'm just saying there's a certain perspective that it has that just everything is in accordance with where it should be. And it's, it's just a, a really interesting interesting Brahma-vihara. And it helps us, can also help us develop patience. Because if we understand that there's a natural unfolding, a wise, intelligent unfolding, that maybe we can't see all of in this very moment, it allows more of an easefulness, more of a restfulness that we can have. That somehow this is working, planets are orbiting, and somehow this is all unfolding the way it's supposed to. One of the phrases, I'm going to jump ahead, uh, I, I actually like the traditional phrase here, which is, all beings are heirs to their karma. And I'm not really going to get into a discussion of karma, because that's a big discussion on what exactly that is. 
but I think we all know the term well enough to know karma is a sort of a cause and effect to karma. If we behave in a certain way in society, we might get arrested and might go to jail. There's a cause and effect of a certain kind of behavior. So in the same way, there's that balance. And I find this to be a really uh, a great phrase for me because, as I mentioned earlier in the retreat, with the phrases, I, I reduce it down to the one word. And, and the one word in this, this phrase to me is heirs. That everyone is, we're all heirs to our karma. So what's happening, it, there is a justice to what's happening to us. And it's really an interesting quality. And um, uh, this was particularly helpful for me at the time of the retreat we did. Uh, I had children, two children, who were now in their 30s and doing very well. And when we did the retreat, uh, I don't know, 11 years ago or something, that wasn't the case. Uh, and my son was having a lot of trouble and was, uh, he had been, had, was under 21 and had, had three DUIs, drinking while intoxic, driving while intoxicated. And the next time he got one, he was going to go to state prison. And this, he was like 20. And as a parent, there was just nothing I could do. I mean, I certainly could, he didn't live with me. I could certainly give him lots of advice about not drinking and driving. But fundamentally, if he, tro- if he chose to do it, I'm, I'm, my hands are tied. And this practice really helped a lot to, to take him as an object and really, really deeply penetrate that he's the heir to his own karma and to realize this may be exactly what he needs in this lifetime to learn a really important lesson, a lesson that changes something in him that going to prison is the only thing that does it. And who am I to know better about that? To, to interfere with that. So it was a really revolutionary practice in that way. I mean, fortunately, he's not gotten a DUI since, and his life has improved quite a lot. But it was really an important feature for me to take that on. And part of the, the heir to the karma isn't just, like in his instance, seeing that there were negative things happening in his life, behaviors that might lead to this, we might call negative karma. Well, it's also the positive karma. It's the good karma. And part of that is, if I'm using him as an example, what's his karma for potential in this lifetime? What's the highest functioning? What's the greatest gift that he has to offer in this lifetime? That also is part of what I'm getting in touch with through the the equanimity, through that balance, through that, uh, you know, the understanding of Again, the good and bad karma, the, the equilibrium that comes with upaka. And so it, to, to me, it's a really powerful practice. And I would really encourage all of you to take it on tomorrow and explore it for yourself. I think if you've... Some people have had a little trouble with one or another of the Brahma Viharas. I think this is a really important one. And again, this is one where... In my feeling, this is like if the other Brahmaviharas are sails on a sail sailboat, this Brahmavihara Upeka is the rudder. Somehow is guiding the whole ship in one direction or another. There's some kind of balance, understanding, wisdom that comes through this Brahmavihara, at least that's my felt sense of it. So I certainly would encourage people to do it.
Any comments before I go on to the... Yeah. Um, you know, this, this can be a hard one because, well, and you'll talk about the, the near and far we'll enemies and all of yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so looking at w- what is the proximate cause for Upaka is really seeing, seeing things as they are. And so to me, Upaka is the wisdom practice of the Brahma Viharas. And, and in that, it's, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a bitter pill. And I'll just say that, like, to give you an example from my own life, when I had my health issue, and, you know, thank goodness for having spiritual practice, because I, you know, I won't tell you what the condition was, because I, to me, that's just something I want to keep private. But, um... About 30% of the people who have it kill themselves because the pain's so bad. And, you know, I, it's like I can really get how that would be possible without a spiritual practice. And, you know, there were people who would say to me, well, you know, aren't you asking, well, why is this happening to me? You know, you're a Buddhist teacher and you're a good person and you aren't doing harm and why is this happening? And literally it never really was an issue for me to ask that question. Why is this happening? I never felt like I was a victim. I never felt like, I mean, there were, it's not like I was fully enlightened the whole time, so I don't want to give you a wrong picture. There were plenty, there's a lot of suffering. There were times when I wasn't at my best. But that was just something that didn't come up because I really have a deep belief that even if I don't know why this is happening, I actually do believe in karma. And I can just hold that, you know, and Steve and I also believe in rebirth, so this, you know, makes the whole thing a little bit more understandable. But um, if I look at human history and I look at all of what's happened and all of the awful history of humanity, who did all that? I mean, if one believes in rebirth, there's nowhere else to look except here. You know, unfortunately, I, I do think humanity's evolving. But um, there was a way I could just accept that somehow this was a burning off of karma. So it never really, um, I never felt like it was, it, it gave me a lot of peace, actually. It gave me a lot of peace of just being able to, um, to not know and to trust that there's, there is a just universe, even if I, from my individual perspective as a human, can't understand all the workings of things. That can I have a, a kind of trust in the grounded being that there's, there's a lot that I don't know and that I'll, I won't ever really know. So, um, I mean, that's technically that's the hardest place to apply this is with yourself. It's pretty easy on the difficult person. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard unless they're having really good fortune. But this, to me, is, is a, a way of... Um, it's brought me a lot of peace. I'll just say that. Gloria? Could, could you speak more about Lupeka and issues of racism and poverty and those major um, experiences that many of us... Right. Yeah, and, and, and I think 
So, so the question is about Upeka relating to racism and sexism and poverty. Yeah. Do you want to comment? Yeah, well, and, and you hadn't gotten to the near enemy, but this is where the danger of a practice like Upeka is the near enemy, which is indifference. And, and, and to be clear, the, the near enemy is something that one could confuse for the Brahma Vihara. So one could feel that they are in touch with equanimity when in fact it's indifference. Right. So like if you look at the history of, of Buddhism and Buddhist countries, um, the idea of karma has been used to perpetuate a huge amount of discrimination. Um, and, and the caste system. The caste system, if you issues. look at India, even today, untouchables, and people look at, well, they were they deserve that as their karma, and so they've got this really, um, really rigid institutionalized discrimination that is kind of chalked up to karma. So this is where, I mean, to me, the the Brahma Vihara of Upeka doesn't mean that we don't act when things that are unjust are occurring. So this is really where socially engaged Buddhism, to me, fits in. And in like in countries like even in Thailand, like, you know, I've heard stories about Buddhist families who will sell their daughter as a sex slave to buy a refrigerator. So I mean I hate to say it, but even now within Buddhism, um, karma and other things, you know, of course it's an inferior rebirth to be born as born female. In the Asian countries, as it can be a belief. So, you know, these are things that get justified, unfortunately, by something like this. So, I mean, I don't know if this is answering your question. Maybe you'd like to comment on well, it. I'd like to add one thing. And I think the other, the other question, or the other area that comes to mind also is passivity and response. I mean, Tina was talking about the engaged, some of the engaged Buddhism that's going on. But there's also, there has been historically a orientation towards passivity in the Buddhist culture, believing that that was the right thing to do, rather than there, there's a road to navigate that's between action and inaction. It's, it's where, where is the wise action versus where is the action that's driven by things like hatred and by um, really the personality distortion. So it's, you know, people like Martin Luther King Jr. were people who could, could find a way to recognize the reality that there was racism and also find a wise approach to engage it that actually effectuated change. So uh, again, uh, I don't think we're asking answering your question directly, but I think we're trying to kind of put it in the Buddhist context. Um, could you share with us your perspective on it? Well, I just didn't want it to be left at that um, point of karma and acceptance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This yeah. Is, and this is why I asked about the, talking about the near enemy of indifference. And, you know, I This is to me why all four Brahma Viharas together are important. Because when we see suffering, 
and the perpetuation of suffering, of which discrimination, oppression, things like that are a form of, um, of cause of harm that causes suffering. It doesn't mean that then we just say, oh, well, it's happening, so let's not do anything about it. You know, there are times when just because we have uh, whatever view we do about how do these things come about, I mean, why is there suffering? That could be a whole retreat to really explore within Buddhism, is there an answer to why is there suffering? And, you know, I don't know that I'm wise enough to really give that talk. But there's a point you're making. The point you're making is that, that there is the possibility of acting out of the compassion. There is the point of wisdom and compassion combining together to take action that people can take that's appropriate and wise rather than just egoic uh, sort of knee-jerk reactions which usually don't end up helping the situations. So. Yeah, the, the possibility of equanimity doesn't mean that um, that within Buddhism there isn't a place for acting to improve, to, to reduce harm in the world. And to me, the two aren't incompatible. They're very compatible. So, again, I, if you have more you'd like to add, I'd, I'd love to invite you to, to share that. Thanks, but it's, it is, I mean, this is why I'll, I'll tell you, I went to the three-month retreat at IMS, and, and the teachers had introduced the Brahma Viharas over the three months, and, and like the last week, Joseph Goldstein came out, and or maybe it was the last two weeks, and introduced Upaka, and there was like almost a riot in the room. It was, <laughs> I was sitting there, you know, like, wow, what happened, you know? But it was around this whole issue. It was around the same, this edge of upaka, and this is really the danger of upaka is the turning into indifference. So this is, this is the line that we really walk of, um, is there a place of equanimity that doesn't turn into indifference? And also action and passivity. Yeah. Because there has been so much of an inclination towards passivity in Buddhism. Yeah. David. Yeah. I was wondering if, um, in the alternate phrase for equanimity, it says, may we, um, may we accept things as they are. The challenge for me is in the word accept. Because accept almost implies a kind of rationalization, you know. I guess I'll just have to accept it. Mm-hmm. So instead of using accept, I was wondering what you think, how about using the word see? Yeah. Maybe see things, that, because see things the way they are is the point at which things begin to change. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, because we begin to fight racism and sexism and gender right. bias and a variety of things. Because right? so what we're trying to do is we're trying to see the truthfulness of things. Mm-hmm. We're trying to see the accuracy of things, right? Rather than seeing what we're putting on it in terms of our delusion and our defilements, we're trying to see what's the clarity, what's true here, and that's really the way. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, if you, again, with all the phrases, to find a phrase that works for you based on your perspective. But again, we're trying to find th- there's something about the truth and there's something about a universal balance that's happening that we can't see. The forces of karma we can't know. Yeah, to me, if I think about, well, what is enlightenment? You know, there could be a long conversation with all of us sharing what we think enlightenment is. But from a practical standpoint, I kind of think about it that, that 
for the, the fully enlightened person, nothing bothers them. I mean, no matter how awful their circumstances were, and they might not like it, it might not be pleasant, but it wouldn't bother them. And to me, that's kind of the pinnacle of equanimity, is that we're not dependent on circumstances for our own peace and our own um, knowing what we are. And, I mean, it would be an amazing place to be where that was one's reality, where it wouldn't really matter what the circumstances were. And that, to me, really is this... That's what um, Opaka is really all about, is equanimity in the face of anything. And, and there still could be the movement of compassion and wisdom to action, to change exactly. things. Right. Even though one is not uh, traumatized by events, there still could be a wisdom of there's a rightness that's beyond personal here right. that needs to be, to be changed or affected. So shifting back, uh, the far enemy, which we can see as the opposite of the Brahma Vihara here, uh, would be resentment, greed, anxiety about the uncontrollability of phenomenon. So that would be the opposite of the equanimity, where, again, the, the traditional phrase is far enemy. And in the sequence of beings, <clears throat> this starts with the neutral person, then benefactor, then friend, then difficult person, and finally self. So isn't it interesting? We work through difficult person before we come to ourself. Any ideas why that might be? More difficulty accepting our own pain and suffering. Right. We, we have more difficulty accepting our own situation than we would the difficult person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now ultimately, really, this comes back to the, the Four Noble Truths that we're going to suffer and the uncontrollability of phenomena is just a part of the human condition. And so is there a way to meet that such that we can have equanimity? And we may still want to take action to change things, but that's different than what our own internal um, response is. And you can see the alternate phrases that are on the uh, on the sheet. Uh, again, uh, Davey mentioned that maybe we all accept things as they are, etc. And, and again, it's fine to work the phrases to find the phrase that's yours, that matches what you're feeling, which is very fine to do. Yeah, and in like for oneself, I mean, this is where... Uh, is there a way of meeting the uncontrollability of circumstances in such a way that we can have peace? That's really what this is kind of pointing towards. So, any questions? Still a little clear about how we work. Are we looking through people that we know with an eye towards either suffering or happiness? Are we perhaps seeing the Brahma Maharas arise within us, like compassion and yet this is still the overarching sense. So the question is about uh, applying this, sort of how to, how to apply this, since uh, it may seem a little, little challenging to grasp that. Um, the, the way it's done is to, for example, starting with a neutral person, 
if you picture or however you, you hold the person in your mind's eye, then if we use the phrase, I like that all beings are heirs to their karma. So it's really a having that person up and really having the phrase, all beings are heirs, so this person is heir to their karma. And just working with that, with the phrase and the person. And uh, you may find that the dynamics of their life or their life as you suspect it to be begin to be revealed about you know, both what we might call bad or good karma. And so there's a way of just recognizing that they're heir to their karma, their situation, um, their some relationship <coughs> to karma. And it's just an understanding of that, uh, that there's some uh, workings that are outside of our knowledge. Or, or to, you know, to, to use another phrase, um, I like something like, I care about you, but can't control your happiness or unhappiness. And this is where, I mean, I'm sure we all have family members, friends, others in our lives who, from our own position, we might be able to see where they, they could be happier, but because of their own inner workings, it's not possible for them. And we, it may cause us a lot of pain to see that, like Stephen was talking about with his son. I mean, that was a really hard situation that wanted, and to keep trying to do things and wanting to do things and knowing it could be different and seeing the way that it could be different and how to make that possible and all that, and knowing that you can't live that person's life for them. You know? And that's really, it's, it's a profound... Um, to me, there's a way where we really get in touch with the profundity of the human condition and really the, the Four Noble Truths that all beings are going to suffer and we, even the Buddha couldn't stop beings from suffering. Only through the teachings is that really possible. And that's really what this is about, is to really feel, you know, and this is where the Upaka to be done with the compassion as part of it. If it starts getting dry or loses that, then it really is going over into the indifference or even the cruelty or you know other aspects that are can have an edge to them. And so, so this is where we start with a neutral person. Like again, we'll take the mail delivery person who. You might wave and say hi to each day and may not know that well. But, you know, you can easily have metta for that person. But at the same time, there's no way that we can really make that person be happy, even if we really wanted to. If we can't even make our close family members be happy, um, there's a way where there's a real profound acceptance of the Four Noble Truths in that. So this is where starting with a neutral person is, you know, it's kind of an, an easier place to start because we don't have as much attachment to whether to their situation. And we also can see what our habituated patterns to uh, trying to help people or trying not to help people. And so we can start seeing how our personality is driving some of these actions we're taking and motivations we have because it's based on our own, our own sense of things rather than the reality of the other person's situation, probably. And so that starts, we start getting more discernment to realize, and again, as Tina's saying, 
then there's the opportunity for wise action, for compassionate action, or no action sometimes <coughs> is what's compassionate. But we start having a better sense of what's, what, how things are, the reality. There's, there's some, something about the mechanics that I'm not understanding. It seems that it's starting with a neutral person. You're starting with that being the first one. There's more of an opportunity to, to, uh, to get stuck on it. Uh, we're less likely to know too much about the neutral person. That's yeah. what I'm not understanding why you start with that. So the mailman, if you play this out, or the, or the guy who's fixing his car is your neighbor, kind of, how do you work it if you don't know a lot about these individuals? Well, think of it this yeah. way. How, how invested are you in that person? I mean, how much are you really trying to control their happiness or to keep them from being unhappy? Probably not very much. Well, very little, so where right. does it go from there? No, so, mm-hmm. Well, it's recognition. You're seeing that you actually can't effectuate much of their happiness or unhappiness. And it's a one where you probably don't have a lot of mm-hmm. investment. That's right, so, so again, just to go through the mechanics, you have a person, so the sequence is designed to start with the easiest one. So if for you that's not the case, you can you can do it in a different order, but this is what's suggested classically. So you are relating to the neutral person and seeing in some ways that you you can't control that, you can't really affect, you can't cause and make sure their happiness, you can't, you know, there's nothing you can do that's really going to produce that and be guaranteed to make that happen. And so, can there be an equanimity with the reality of that? Right. Can there be where you would like, I mean, this is why we do all of the other Brown Viharas first. That, you know, yeah, you'd like for them to be happy and you can have a loving, you know, you can feel meta towards them and other things. And you can't make that happen. And can there be equanimity in that? And so with a neutral person, we don't have that much skin in the game. Because we, I mean, we just, we don't know them that well. Whereas you start with your spouse, you know, or your children, or your, you know, somebody that's very, very close to you, it's a lot harder to have more, have more of a sense of really getting that as much as I want to, I can't really control that person's experience of their life. But you can up in the meta. You can meet their suffering with karuna. So there are ways, and when they have joy, you can feel mudita. So there are ways you can be supportive in a way that is helpful to them. But you need to see the reality. It helps. Yeah, so that's where, you know, we, it's encouraged to start there. And then benefactor, usually benefactor is somebody that we don't have, you know, has been good to us, but we may not have a real personal relationship with. And then, you know, we yeah, sort of work through up to yourself, which is considered to be the hardest does that give you a little bit more of a sense of yes, how it would? It is. It's a. It's. It's a challenging practice. I mean, personally, I think Upeka is the hardest one. 
even though a lot of times in the teachings it's said that mudita is. You have to try and find out. Yeah. Okay. Comment? Question? So I was trying to get uh, a feeling tone of Eka. It was easier in the first three to have a real uh, feeling uh, tone to the expression. And so my question is, since we've gone through the first three and have had various levels of beings that we've wished well toward and have been removed suffering from and wish that we would continue, we've expressed that we care about those beings. So the care seems like it's still there, and yet there's a real leg of the outcome, uh, which is based on karma and their, their own life and not ours. Is that uh, right? Yeah, I think, I, I think what you're saying is accurate. I, to me, again, I, I was trying to point to the feeling tone, which is one that everything feels to be exactly in the right place, balanced exactly as it needs to be right now. So somehow, even though there's imperfection, it's perfect, just like this. Yeah, I would say it may be a little bit differently, and, and one of the ways for me that I can get in touch with Upaka is that in the in the actual practice, in the concentration practice that we teach of Anapanasati, with the jhana progression, in the fourth jhana, Upaka is really the only feeling tone that's left. Mm-hmm. And it's not an emotion, it's really a sense of um, sort of, um, it, it's like there's a wisdom of realizing that from our own individual perspective, we can't actually know everything about what's going on. So for me, I almost take it as more of a sense of, um, of the mystery. It sounds almost like you're saying some kind of faith also. Yeah, I mean, faith. the word faith is normally has more to do with religions that have a God, so I right. wasn't using that word, but there's a way for me That's where it's me. like there's, there's yeah. a mystery in the universe, and um, I mean, it does point to some kind of basic trust of, of beingness, and even if I can't like logically understand what is going on, which like happens to me constantly. I look at the world and I think, how could this possibly, like, why is this happening, you know? Why is there suffering and it doesn't make sense and, and so on. I actually do fundamentally believe in the goodness of the universe. And so there's something in that. It's not like I'm accepting that change isn't needed and that I wouldn't undertake that. But there's something about um, a kind of trust in the mystery of existence. Well, and it's trust somehow in your contact with that mystery. That somehow right now in this moment, in this contact, everything is exactly in its right place. There's just some tone of that. As Tina said, in the jhanas from the fourth on to what we call the upper jhanas, five, six, seven, eight, 
that's one of the only jhana factors present. So it's one that doing the practice we spend a lot of time with. So it's and and it allows a kind of there's there's a lot of equanimousness in that when you're doing the practices, they're oftentimes outside your rational mind. It doesn't make sense what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But yet, it's it's happening exactly the way that the book says or your teacher says, even though it's really illogical. Um, but yet, it's happening. So somehow, th- this supports that. Somehow, this is perfectly unfolding. Yeah, and if there's if it doesn't fit, feel like a fit for you to think of it as everything's in the right place, because then there's kind of an evaluation about it. Like for me, I have it more. This is where for me the idea of of the mystery of unfoldment. Like I'll go back again to my health thing. When it was happening, I mean, I really couldn't understand anything good about that happening. You know, it just seemed like there was just nothing good about it. But as now with some perspective on it, I can see that so many things got cultivated in me that wouldn't have happened otherwise without such an extreme situation that, um, that I'm very grateful that our capacities that developed now. And would I have chosen it? I would have never chosen it. But it happened and there was nothing I could do about it. And there are now capacities because of that experience. So at the time, I couldn't have made any sense out of it, but now there's a way where, in a weird way, I'm kind of even grateful, you know? So this is where, I mean, to me, there's, there's something about the mystery of existence that we can't always know why something's happening. And sometimes later we get to know, and sometimes maybe our whole lives will go by and we'll never know. But can we still trust that there's something bigger happening that we can we can have contact with that mystery of unfoldment, that there is something, I mean, you know, this is part of, again, the, the precious human birth is, is the suffering motivates us to, for liberation. And so if there wasn't any suffering at all, we probably wouldn't even be practicing, you know? And it's kind of unfortunate that that's true, but that's an example to me of the mystery, that that's something that prompts us to actually seek liberation, not in the circumstances and the external, but in something deeper that is beyond this body and this life and this personality. And and, and remember, you're hearing a sampling of two. So really what we'll see tomorrow is, as you all take this on, what's it like for you? What's the contact like? What's the experience like? How would you describe it? Because that's what we want to hear. What's it like in your experience, in your words, with your lifetime, in your eyes, in your practice? And then you can tell us. So I think now that we've been through this, that quote's going to have more impact. Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible arise within us.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.